Hey guys, this is Hannah. We took a week off from recording over the holidays, and so this episode will be a reboot of an old episode, but it is one that I find still comes up for me all the time, and it's a little bit of an older one, so I hope you guys enjoy. We will be back in two weeks with more episodes, and we'll be really glad to see you soon. Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. How are you both this evening? I'm excited. Doing great. And we're all awake. No witness, to, no witness to apneas. I'll try not to make this one a snooze. On this episode, and it's a sleeper. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to learn about why and how obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, can cause nocturnal urination. Hannah, how did you get interested in this question? So this question was driven by trying to convince a patient to wear their CPAP and in talking with them, realizing that one of the most bothersome symptoms that they were having was uh, having to urinate, having to wake up to urinate frequently overnight. And so often we sort of struggle to explain to our patients sometimes how important it is to do something like wearing CPAP, which they don't necessarily feel better after they do. But for this patient, my attending shared the fact with them that OSA can cause nocturia, and it made a huge difference in convincing them to give it a try wearing a CPAP. I had not known that OSA was associated with nocturnal urination before this, and so it, of course, piqued my interest, and I wanted to figure out why it was and share it with you guys. Had you guys seen, had you guys known about this? No, I see a ton of OSA in, my, in the hospital, and I hadn't heard about this link before, but I feel like so many of my patients are up at night that I just, I just explain it from some other cause, but it could very well be that a lot of them are up at night because of this. I just wonder if maybe I haven't been asking the right questions, because no, I have not heard of this association. So it wasn't on the 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 boards when you took the boards. The the my pulmonary board exam did not have have a question about this. Yeah. Lots of sleep, but not about this. So I don't know. Maybe Hannah, it probably be valuable just to remind everyone, including uh, you know me and Avi, uh, a little bit about OSA. Maybe even starting with something as simple as a definition. Yeah. So OSA, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, is a sleep disorder in which you get intermittent partial or complete collapse of the upper airway during sleep, obstructive sleep causing apnea. Typically, it's due in adults to decreased muscle tone, usually of the upper airways, plus minus some contribution of anatomic factors like how heavy your chest wall is or the way that your chin or jaw is structured. So overnight, when these muscles relax, the airway gets obstructed, either completely or partially, and patients experience apneic episodes, meaning their airway is completely blocked for 10 seconds or more at a time, or hypopneic episodes, meaning that the airway is partially blocked. When your airway is blocked, as you can imagine, you have low oxygen saturation, and that typically disrupts sleep and has a variety of effects, one of which we'll talk about today, but including worse cardiovascular outcomes and quality of life. Typically, when we measure OSA, we use something called the apnea-hypopnea index, which is hard to say, so we'll call it the AHI, which is literally just how many times you have an apnea or a hypopnea overnight. So, so you mentioned that oftentimes these patients will wake up at night because of the hypoxemia, but I have to imagine that the explanation we're going to hear isn't just that they're awake, so they decide to go to the bathroom. So what is it about this particular breathing issue that leads to nighttime urination? 
Yeah. So in looking into this topic, one of the things that I realized is that I don't always think through super systematically nocturia or urinating overnight. It's not sort of one of those things that I have a differential diagnosis or a schema offhand for. And so I'll give you guys kind of what I learned as a way to categorize or think about a schema for nocturia. The first reason that you can have increased urine output overnight is global polyuria, meaning that you're just urinating a lot um, or elevated urine output through a 24-hour period. So reasons that you might have that, for example, are just diabetes insipidus or polydipsia. You have just too much urine output overall. The second kind of bucket is having a bladder storage issue. So either, for example, you have a distal obstruction that's causing not enough room for you to like add new urine in, you have an elevated postvoid residual, for example, or you might have detrusor hyperactivity that's causing your bladder to spasm and not be able to fill, or perhaps you have a fetus or a uterus pressing against your bladder or a mass or ascites in your bladder. So those are all reasons for low bladder storage. And then the last is nocturnal polyuria. So this is high urine output specifically at night because of physiologic factors that only happen at night. The classic example, perhaps then one that we'll talk about today, is peripheral edema. So oftentimes when people sit up at night with their legs on the bed, that causes the third spaced fluid in the legs to come back into the vasculature. And that's one reason that people who are volume overloaded, especially, for example, in the hospital, I feel like we see it, may have more frequent urination overnight. But when people have just nocturnal polyuria, they don't always see an overall increase in the 24-hour urine production. So, all right, we had global polyuria, bladder storage problems, and nocturnal polyuria. Where do you think my patient goes? Where would you put our OSA patients? Because option three has nocturnal in the term, <laughs> and this is a sleep disorder, I guess my initial guess would be option three, nocturnal polyuria. What is nocturnal polyuria? <laughs> <laughs> Tony, double jeopardy? Unfortunately, I'm going to be boring and say the same thing. Um, unless the sleep apnea somehow leads to like the shrinkage of the urinary bladder or something. Uh, so I'm going with uh, what is nocturnal polyuria? Yeah, yeah. You guys are right. It was hard to find uh, another example other than leg edema for this phenomenon that's usually described as either being from leg edema or sleep apnea. Um, but we'll also talk about why there's some component of global polyuria too. So there is something afoot in the kidney in this disorder, and it's more than just podocytes. So we've talked before about how decreases in antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, because of alcohol can cause polyuria on the podcast when we talked about sort of this concept of breaking the seal with alcohol. But there's a group of peptides that work against ADH that we haven't really covered before on the podcast, which we call the natriuretic, meaning salt urinating peptides. And they work against ADH in the RAS system. So to remind you guys, atrial natriuretic peptide ANP and brain natriuretic peptide BNP are peptides that are released by the atria and the ventricles respectively in response to stretch of those structures. Usually clinically, we talk about NT-proBNP, which is the more stable form of the physiologically active uh, metabolite BNP. And we measure NT-proBNP to assess whether wall stretch is happening in the ventricles due to typically volume overload and heart failure exacerbations. And so when the atrial or ventricular walls are stretched because of pressure or volume overload, BNP is a natriuretic peptide. It causes urination of salt and acts as a diuretic. 
which promotes urinary salt excretion and therefore more urine production, you get rid of the fluid. So is this what's probably happening with the patients who have the leg edema who are recumbent at night? Is it the kind of the same idea there where that blood goes back to the heart and the BNP goes up? You know, I don't know how much BNP is a part of the nocturnal like physiology of that type of like uh, of that type of nocturnal polyuria. I think it's often just like that is attributed to the mechanical component mm, right. of just like you are lifting up the legs. Right. But right. I wonder, it probably is. Okay. Um, but I don't know if that's been studied. So kind of summarizing what, what we just said, ADH is the opposite. Antidiuretic hormone is the opposite of the natriuretic peptides. The natriuretic peptides respond to stress and make you pee out or respond to wall stretch and make you pee out extra salt. So how does this connect to the lungs? We typically think about it in heart failure. When you have an apneic or hypopneic event overnight, you are trying to breathe against an obstructed upper airway. And so you're going to try and generate, if you imagine blocking off your, your throat now, you would have to try and generate a very high negative intrathoracic pressure. You're going to try and build as much of a vacuum as you can in order to get air into your lungs. So you make this big vacuum to suck as much air in, as you can in. When that happens, if you were to suck as much air into your chest as you could, you would also be creating a vacuum around the structures in the mediastinum, so your heart, your IBC. So what we do when we do that is we stretch the ventricular walls. Um, we add to the transmural pressure on the left ventricular wall. And we increase the pressure against which the LV is pumping, the left ventricular, left ventricle is pumping the afterload. We also stretch out the IVC, which increases preload. When that happens, that stretch of the ventricular wall causes those cardiomyocytes to release BNP. And so what we see is that the more apneic or hypopneic events you have per night, the higher your BNP level is. The more BNP you release while you're sort of having all of these episodes, the more natriuresis you have. And that's why we think that patients with OSA need to wake up more times overnight to urinate because of this BNP release. That's really fascinating. And just to summarize to make sure I understand this explanation, the attempts, just to make sure I understand this explanation, the attempts to breathe against sort of a, a closed airway, a closed glottis leads to sort of pressure fluctuations in the thorax and then stretch of the ventricular wall, BNP release, natriuresis, po nocturnal polyuria. Is that is that sort of the proposed explanation? Yeah, that is the proposed explanation. That's really cool. And I guess you know the only, the only other thing that comes to mind for me is what role hypoxemia might play as well. Um, I think it's sort of controversial whether or not hypoxemia induces ventricular myocytes to release natriuretic peptides. But one wonders if perhaps that plays a role too. But that is a really cool physiologic explanation. Yeah. And one of the – so I totally agree. Some of the like kind of question of oxygenation and how that plays a role in the BNP release is definitely a part of it. But one of the really cool things about this explanation is that there is sort of some – either whether it's from hypoxemia or from ventricular stretch, the – actually observed physiology seems to correlate really well with what we what we theorize. And so in observational data of patients with OSA, what we found, so for example, they took 50 patients with OSA and about 30 without. They had them drink the same diet, the exact same fluid intake down to what substances they were allowed to drink and sleep in the same the, about the same number of hours in a polysomnography unit. 
What they found was that the 6 a.m. BNP level was almost 50 in those with OSA and about 30 in those without. So a pretty significant difference, which was related to an average AHI or apnea hypocnia index of 36 in the OSA group and 3.6 in the group without. So what we see is really that patients with severe OSA are more likely to have a high BNP, which could really explain why they have so much nocturia. Speaking to this idea specifically that that's like the driver of this, you could say, well, they just have a high BNP, maybe they just have severe OSA that's associated with other comorbidities. The urine sodium and urine osms were also higher in the group with OSA. So it's pretty cool. I think we can really see that like some of these physiologic variables actually respond to this hypopnic, apneic stimulus. Very interesting. It, it is, but we still haven't quite linked up with the, noctur- the nocturnal polyuria, you know, the peeing a lot at night, right? So we've, we've, it sounds like OSA and higher BNP levels are linked, but does that necessarily translate into more urine production? Yeah. So in this study, they very impressively restricted the fluid intake to only water and Japanese tea, uh, and they averaged 1.3 liters per patient. And, And it's also a relatively small study. So they were not able to see a huge difference in the amount of... But in a larger retrospective study of patients in their home environment, looking sort of reporting their own symptoms and their number of nocturia events overnight... This is sort of a more representative sample, perhaps, of what our patients are experiencing. About one-third of patients with severe OSA, meaning an AHI over 30, 30 times an hour having these episodes, are urinating over three times a night, as opposed to just 15% of those with mild OSA and less than 5% of those without OSA. So just in the same way that that group with pretty severe OSA is also having a lot of BNP released. What kind of proves that that might be the pathologic mechanism and might actually contribute to the nocturia is that the urine sodium and osms are much higher in that group and that they actually experience more frequent urination events. Okay. But earlier I I said kind of tongue in cheek, maybe they're just getting up more often. And this time this study says, yeah, they're getting up or they're urinating more often, but couldn't it still, still be that they're just getting up more often, so they're urinating more often. Like, do you have actual, like, volume differences that you can offer us? We do. Okay. We do. So there's some really incredible studies that required, I imagine, just like, just incredible INO tracking by the participants and the conductors of all of these studies. Really amazing. So one of the best studies that I think that we have on this specific topic compares patients with treated OSA to untreated OSA. So patients with untreated severe OSA had an average nocturnal urine volume of 700 cc's, 723 to be precise. And patients with treated OSA had an average urine volume, nocturnal urine volume of 450 cc's. Those patients also, the patients with untreated OSA also had a total 24-hour urine volume that was higher than the others, um, about 2 liters versus 1.7 liters, despite even daily water intake across both groups. That's seen in a couple of studies, but that was my favorite study that really showed this dramatic difference, 700 cc's overnight versus 450 cc's uh, for treated OSA. Yeah, yeah, but it still makes me reflect that this condition, even when treated and probably treated well, they're still getting up to urinate to some extent. It's it's still for the, in terms of quality of life, it still has to be affected. 
Um, but yeah. all right, that those numbers I would say are more compelling to me. Okay, so I gotta say, yes, these patients are urinating less. These numbers I think are are pretty compelling, but they do still seem to be, you know, they're still getting up. You know, four hundred and fifty three cc's overnight is not nothing. It means they're they're out of bed. So can we fix the nocturia if we fix the OSA? I think we can make some strides. There's some pretty optimistic data. And the other thing that we can do is really improve quality of life scores. But I agree, we should fix all OSA, OSA completely. So I'll share with you some of the treatment data. There's two big treatment modalities that have been studied for this. The first perhaps being the obvious CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure, and the other being surgery. So for those who don't know, CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure is a device that delivers air directly into the nostrils in order to keep the upper and lower airways open throughout the respiratory cycles. And so in those patients who had moderate to severe OSA, CPAP reduced the average number of, wake of awakenings to urinate from two to one and decreased the amount urinated overnight by over 250 cc's. It also, so they had them do a standardized quality of life assessment for incontinence, and it decreased that from 3.4 on sort of a burden of noxurious scale to 1.9. So it's hard to correlate that necessarily with quality of life, but it's something. The other sort of piece or the way of treatment is a palatal surgery. So a study from Japan looked at 103 patients who had palatal surgery for OSA and found that particularly in the group with really, really severe OSA, so over 30 apnea, hypopnea events per hour, had an average decrease of 1.5 nocturia events overnight. So if I could pee, wake up to pee 1.5 fewer times overnight, I would at least be moderately quality of life improved, I would hope. <laughs> um, so you're in a good place and, there. <laughs> Ayo. Um, well, I can tell you from then, personal experience, so last night my four-year-old son got up in the middle of the night uh, to urinate, and he says he woke me up to do it. Um, <laughs> and I am significantly more tired today just from that one overnight urination that wasn't even my own uh, than I am when I get a good night's sleep. So I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> One of the interesting things is actually that vasopressin is like an old school, you know, advanced line therapy for um, enuresis in children. Yeah. Um, and that I, that I had remembered. And so vasopressin, as we've talked about before, is like an ADH, is the same thing as ADH. Um, and it acts on that pathway. But this is an ADH antagonist that does the opposite. But I don't think that we should prescribe ADH to these patients. Or, or to my, my son, who's just trying to sleep train. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're stuck with that. <laughs> yeah. I, well, believe me, I know I am. Yeah. Um, the other kind of interesting thing, just like in thinking about how this affects clinical practice or affects a lot of people's clinical practice, is that when you look at like the case reports of how this has been reported, a lot of it is actually geared toward people who treat nocturia at making them think of OSA because just like them, this was not in – just like us, this – is not in a lot of people's schema. And it's often this kind of recalcitrant nocturia, maybe like really bad BPH symptoms we attribute it to, for example, yeah. but that's actually just not responding to therapy because it's driven by the sleep apnea. Um, and so it's certainly something that I'll be thinking about more often. Yeah, me too. It certainly sounds like if someone says they have nocturnal polyuria, we should be thinking about OSA given how common OSA is, but how common is this manifestation of sleep apnea? 
Yeah, we don't have amazing like kind of prevalence studies, but in some groups, so in kind of a high risk group of patients with OSA, so people who are reporting both nocturnal awakening and nocturia, they found that there's about 40%, 45% prevalence of patients with OSA. The kind of interesting thing is how many patients should with nocturia should we be then screening for OSA or should we be thinking about? And again, there's really only sort of like N of 30-ish studies that have been done on this, unfortunately. But in some of those studies, looking at potentially very relatively high-risk patients with pretty bad nocturia, they found over half in two studies of those patients had OSA that had not previously been assessed. Wow. So I certainly have like formed this as a mental link in a way that I haven't before. Yes. Yeah, so, so I would say given those prevalence numbers, you know, Avi, you mentioned earlier, maybe we haven't heard about it because we're not asking enough. Um, I feel like this discussion is going to prompt me to ask more often because it really could affect the way that we counsel our patients and the way that it affected the patient that you um, encountered, Hannah. And I think also as a sort of, because CPAP adherence can sometimes, um, I'm not a sleep specialist myself, but my sense is that CPAP adherence can sometimes be difficult. This is sort of a expected benefit. If the patient has this problem, we can perhaps expect it to get better with CPAP adherence, along with all the other benefits. Do you have any take-home points for us, Anna? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the the biggest take-home point is exactly that, that like finding out what the symptom of the disease is that actually matters to the patient is one of the most compelling ways to connect on the importance of sort of some therapy and make it actually benefit their lives. And then from a physiologic perspective, my biggest take home was that these apnea and hypopnea events in OSA cause an increase in BMP, and that that is the reason for increased nocturia and diuresis overnight in these patients. And that while we don't have a great sense of what the prevalence is, probably the prevalence of of OSA in patients with nocturia and nocturia in patients with OSA is higher than we're necessarily looking for. So it's kind of a new link that I'll make in my mind that I'll ask about with patients and hopefully be able to kind of like bring into counseling in the future. A a totally new link for me as well. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Uh, Thanks as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We're excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.